Thank you to YCharts for sponsoring today's episode. All right, we are here at the beautiful Camp Kotak here in Maine, very close to Canada. And I'm joined by Daniel DiMartino Booth of QI Research. Danielle, thank you for joining me and thank you for really being my ticket in. You really pulled the strings to get me into this exclusive event. So really, thank you. Well, Jack, you're the right person to be here. So, um, and th- by the way, this is our first time filming in person. It is. And what a venue to do it. I mean, this is this is such a beautiful place. This is spectacular. I mean, yeah. it, it just doesn't get... I was coming in on the float plane today from Bangor, and the pilot said, you know, I I fly over all of the lakes in Maine. This is the cleanest. Yeah. I mean, we're really in God's country. As the sun gets ready to set, it's just amazing. We are in God's country. What happened in our country, America? Something recently happened with our debt. Tell us, I, I've been, you know, I'm in the wilderness. I'm not thinking about finance. What what happened? Well, uh, I Fitch is the second credit rating agency to downgrade the United States sovereign debt. And what that means is now S&P is joined by a second credit rating agency. Twelve years ago, because S&P was alone in downgrading the sovereign debt of the United States, the actual rating was not lowered. You have to have two of the three majors concur with one another in order for the actual credit rating of the country to come down. So that's that's happened. Um, a lot of people think that this is a, a non-event. Um, but I, uh, I'm, I'm not going to go with the consensus here. Okay. I, I, think, I think Fitch was actually brave and bold to do what they did when they did it. I think the timing is what's critical here. Um, because we're not at DEFCON 1. There's not a major standoff in the country. So, uh, and you know, and then they followed Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, you know, so these yeah. massive debt markets. And when you think about the standing, people always talk about the dollar as being the reserve currency. And therefore, we, we don't have to play by the same rules as the rest of the, of the developed and emerging market economies. Um, but I think of the United States more in terms of the fact that we are the risk-free asset. We are the treasury. The treasury is the benchmark for the financial system. And it is now sporting a lower credit rating than many other countries. And, um, and rightly so. When S&P downgraded, and it was 12 years ago, the Bloomberg satellite van that happened to be here that day got stuck because somebody was parked in front of the sat van on Sunday. And here at Camp Kotak. Here at Camp Kotak. Yeah. So this is the second Camp Kotak. The, de- the U.S. debt has been downgraded twice, and both of those times have been during Camp Kotak. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Jim Bianco, we're on the float plane coming over today, and we're like, is it something about Camp Kotak and downgrades? Because, and that was our rookie year, 2011. Yeah. And this is my rookie year. And this is your rookie year. So it's something about rookie years. Um, but Bloomberg ended up, you know, the producers called, and they were like, don't leave. You're, it, it's Sunday. And you've got all these economists captive right there at Lane's Lodge. Back up, turn the t- turn the um, cameras back on, and we filmed from this dock for hours. Wow! It was Bloomberg's like biggest coup ever. Nori Rubini stood on the deck, and he was interviewed. And I watched the mosquitoes biting at the back of his legs. I could not be interviewed at the time, but I was whispering questions because <laughs> I was at the Federal Reserve, so I I, I I I was mum on the subject, but. But this is a this is a moment. This is important, and 
it may not feel like it right now. We're in a huge bull market and nothing matters. It doesn't matter what you tell people. It, it doesn't matter what I tweet out. There's always somebody who's going to tweet back. It's bullish. Very true. And that's that's the environment that we're in. That, by the way, you know, the New York Times was one of, I think, seven major publications that ran with stories a week ago saying the U.S. is poised for a soft landing, soft landing, soft landing. Soft. I mean, it was the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, all of the major financial media ran with the same story, soft landing, soft landing, soft landing. I've never been one for, for, for the consensus. But what, what was interesting about the New York Times article was that it pointed out, you know, in 2000, there was this, this, this much of a blanket consensus. In 2007, in fact, they cited a Dallas Fed paper when I was inside the Dallas Fed that was published that said that, that growth was going to moderate, but we weren't going to go into recession. Of course, we were damn near in recession by then. Um, when that was written. And the point that the New York Times reporter was making, and I respect it, is be very cautious when everybody's of the same view. And that view is, is benign. Because history tells us that that's often when we look back and say, oh my gosh, we were in recession, right? The Bureau of Labor Statistics came out last week. And for the second, third, and fourth quarters of 2022, they reduced non-farm payroll growth by 816,000. And we're seeing a series outside of construction spending. There's a special story there because the Federal Reserve caps how much inflation can be put into construction spending. So it has to be revised afterwards to reflect the inflation that it was actually apparent. So aside from upward revisions to construction spending, we are seeing downward revisions to all kinds of data. And that's why I say, be very cautious about your view on the U.S. economy. And the reason the National Bureau of Economic Research has not called a recession or not is because they're sitting back saying revisions have momentum. When, when we're having an upward revision stream, they tend to build on each other. That means we're coming out of recession. When you have downward revisions, they also tend to have downward momentum. So on August the 23rd, we'll get annual revisions to payrolls, which we'll, we will all watch tomorrow morning like it's the Super Bowl. It's Friday morning at Lean's Lodge. There's nothing like it. Non-farm payroll Friday. There's nothing like it. Um, but what we're seeing in the downward revision momentum is that we will probably get a large downward revision when those annual benchmarks get released later this month. So I want to return to the downgrading of the mm -hmm. U.S. debt. Mm -hmm. So what was it, 12 years ago that S&P uh, &P. &P, uh, downgraded uh, U.S. Treasury debt? With the benefit of hindsight, what like what has changed since then? I, I might posit Nothing. not a whole lot. Nothing. People forget that S&P downgraded the debt of the United States because we'd gone through this huge debt ceiling drama and come out at the other end with nothing to show for it. No entitlement reforms, no apparent ability to, to be bipartisan and to look for solutions for the long-term prosperity of the nation's balance sheet. And guess what? We've just come out of another very rancorous debt ceiling standoff. There's going to be a budget showdown here in a few months come fall. But to Fitch's point, nothing's getting done. There is... 
there, there, there's more divisiveness in Washington, D.C. than there's ever been and less of an ability and wherewithal and desire to do anything to address the nation's finances. And most say debts, debt and deficits don't matter. So I take my hat off to Fitch for saying, you know what, they do matter. And if Jay Powell is successful in continuing on with his hire for longer mission, just the, the, just the cost to service the nation's debt is, is going to go parabolic. These are realities. And they're realities that reflect the fact that we can't get anything done in Washington, D.C. And that's why I think Fitch was spot on. And had, had it not been in, in my Bloomberg chat room yesterday, somebody made a very wise observation. When everybody's criticizing the actions of an entity, that means that the entity's probably onto something. And I said, that's very true. Numbers and data are one thing, but how you communicate the story behind them is what really brings your analysis to life. With YCharts, each output has a powerful visual that you can leverage to answer the why behind your strategy and deliver a personalized client experience. Go beyond a simple price chart and educate clients about the levers that impact performance or risk, and emphasize your most important insights with flexible chart annotations. Plus, use custom branding, colors, and disclosures to help position you to fully own those insights. Visit go.ycharts.com forward dash guidance or click the link in the show notes to start your free YCharts trial today. And you can get 15% off your initial subscription if you're a new customer. Again, that's go.ycharts.com forward dash guidance. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. What does it mean for there to be a credit rating on a government that prints its own money? So, uh, you know, Apple, uh, you know, Exxon Mobil, can it, if it runs out of business, if it runs out of, you know, uh, it loses tons of money, it can go bankrupt. It, creditors will not be paid back. Greece, it owes euros. There's no central bank of Greece. I mean, there, there is, but it reports to the ECB. The ECB prints euros. You know, Argentina, they have debt denominated in dollars. But if Argentina has debt denominated in pesos, if the U.S. has debt denominated in dollars, what's the risk that you won't be paid back if the government can just print the money? And I would say like Zimbabwe, the, the risk there was that you got, you know, you got paid back. It's just that there's inflation or, or currency, currency risk, uh, you know, extreme, you know, the same in Germany with hyperinflation in the 1920s. Right. But you did get paid back. You, you did get paid back. And everything is fine and going to be fine in the medium term because there is no alternative. This is Tina. There is no alternative to the dollar. There's no alternative to the treasury. China does not want that responsibility or the burden. So because there's no replacement, they could downgrade the United States debt to junk tomorrow if they wanted to. It wouldn't have practical ramifications if there wasn't another currency to step in. Mm -hmm. But we have to recognize, and I think Fitch recognized this. Michael Hartnett at Bank of America has mm. done great work. Yeah. And on a 12-month run rate, the deficit's running at 9% of GDP. On a 12-month run rate, you know, we're racking up $6.7 trillion of debt. At the peak of the pandemic, it was $7.6 trillion. So we're running wartime deficits at a time of peace with no global health emergency to speak of. And it's right for a credit rating agency to say, you're spending money like drunken sailors for no apparent reason. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to 
introduced an idea from uh, modern monetary theory that I'm kind of chewing on. I don't know, and I, mm. you know if I agree with that. I want to know if don't you, hit that button. Uh, okay, okay. So the idea, the the risk there, if the U.S. prints too much money, government spends too much money, is that there will be inflation because there's too much money chasing too few goods. Oh, inflation! The dollar will depreciate against other fiat currencies. Inflation will be a thousand percent, but not that the deficit itself is bad. It's just that there was too much and it resulted. So in other words, inflation itself is the bad thing. Currency depreciation against other currencies, that is the bad thing, not the deficit itself. Do you agree with that? Or is, is deficit, is debt itself in some way kind of a sin that it by its own right is, is wrong? Putting debt on a balance sheet without good reason, that's the ultimate sin. And because in the post-pandemic environment, we saw fiscal stimulus monetized fully by the Federal Reserve, which is not in the business of monetizing it today. Mm -hmm. Today, it's going in the opposite direction. Yes. But in the post-pandemic environment, the Fed monetized every penny and the transmission mechanism was broken, went completely around the banking system as an intermediary, as the arbiter of credit and gave money directly, directly deposited money in people's bank accounts and it, it ignited the inflation that proved to be, you know, so impossible for the Fed to achieve for a decade. And yet there we were. So we took modern monetary theory on a test drive and it crashed into the wall. And the inflation that's been sustained and suffered by, especially by middle income Americans, hardworking Americans, who weren't part of the expanded social safety net, the lowest income earners for months and months and months had consumer confidence that was well above the highest income earners and the middle income earners in the University of Michigan data. That's changed. We're finally starting to see job cuts in the lowest paid working segment. But for a very long time, you had the situation where the lowest income earners were the most protected. And the highest income earners were agnostic. As long as you have zero interest rate policy. Well, stocks were going up. Stocks were going up. But zero interest rate policy, much more importantly, allows you to build leverage on leverage on leverage. And that makes the wealthy wealthier. But Jay Powell saw something. And Fitch probably saw it with Jay Powell. And so did S&P. And so did Moody's. And that was that there was no bid for the long bond in Asian trading. This is the risk-free asset on March the 20th, 2020. You can't have that happen. All of a sudden, it's not the risk-free asset anymore if it, if it doesn't trade. So that was the existential risk posed um, in a post-pandemic world. And that is why Jay Powell's on a mission to push for central clearing of treasuries to make sure this never happens again to safeguard the sanctity of the Treasury. Jay Powell, when asked about the U.S. government deficit, gives the following answer. And if and when he is asked about the downgrade of, of, of U.S. debt by Fitch, I can almost guarantee you that he will give the following answer. That's not my job. I care about inflation, the dual inflation and unemployment, the dual mandate, a little financial stability sprinkled on top. That's not my job. You know, that's up to Congress. Do you think that He's he right. believes that in his in his heart, or is that something that's just when you're Fed chair, you gotta say that? Well, when you're Fed chair, you do have to say that, but I believe he believes that. Um, 
when you look back at the transcripts from when Janet Yellen was at the Fed, the dollar was constantly being mentioned when theoretically the dollar is not under the Fed's purview. Mm -hmm. That's the Treasury's role to safeguard the dollar. And yet there was such concern. I I don't think Jay Powell's that person. Mm -hmm. I don't. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen, tell us what are your thoughts on her, in order to fund the government, she has issued and will issue a trillions of dollars of debt. And I think up until this point, it has been more shorter term bills. T-bills, T-bills, T-bills. Yeah, which which maybe uh, use up less liquidity than uh, longer term coupon instruments, 10 year, 30 year notes. But did did the Treasury recently come out and announce that it is going to... It's going to have to issue coupons. Yeah. It, it, the day will come. I'm, the day will come. And we will be locking in these rates for a long time. That's a much different proposition than locking in these rates for 30 or 60 or 90 days. And it, it places the nation's finances in a more precarious position to have these commitments way out over the horizon. And when you think about zero interest rate policy and... And the squandered opportunity to issue 50-year debt, to issue a century bond like Argentina. And we squandered that opportunity because, because politicians didn't want to even have those higher interest rates at the time. And now you think about where we are today. I, there, there's, there's a term for this, for what Congress didn't do in pushing for longer maturity issuance when the opportunity was there. And it's called misfeasance. And it, 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 it's, and that, that makes Jay Powell right. It was Congress's job at the time to take advantage of zero interest rate policy to indemnify the nation's balance sheet, to lock in low rates for as long as possible. And now we're faced with locking in high rates, placing the country at risk. Yes, but by issuing short-term bills now, as tre- the Treasury has been doing, they're actually paying more than if they issued a 10-year bond because we have an inverted yield curve. That's so correct. Is that malfeasance? And also, if, if is paying, we have to you know, fund, fund the government, is issuing long-term bonds, is that actually better because it's cheaper if rates stay higher for longer? You're right. If rates go down, then this will be bad to lo- you know, issue a 10-year note at, 10 year, at 4%. Right. But if, if it, we're in a higher-for-longer world, this is the reality. Right. But but Janet Yellen is operating the same way that most people in commercial real estate are operating, the same way that that bankers are operating. Everybody's operating under the assumption that zero interest rate policy is right around the corner and it's going to come save them. And that's what makes the current behavior reckless in nature to me. Because everything's a kiss and a prayer. And the assumption that Given Jay Powell's got so many more basis points to work with, to lower interest rates when the time comes, that says to me, we never have to go back to the zero bound. And therefore, all of these operating assumptions are false. If he never revisits the zero bound, he's just one man. He doesn't have an eternity left in office. But he has long enough left at his post if he doesn't get crucified and carried out and hung in front of the Eccles building, which could happen because Republicans and Democrats are united in their blaming him for everything. So the, 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 the committee for crucifying Jay Powell is, is very bipartisan. It's the only bipartisan thing in the country. 
But if he succeeds over these next three years, he will make private equity very uncomfortable. He'll make commercial real estate realize these losses as opposed to extending and pretending ad infinitum. The topic last night among you know, the financiers, economists, and me at Cam Code Talk was discussed commercial real estate and whether the Federal Reserve might be willing or able to have a special facility in 2024 to uh, absorb loans, lend against commercial real estate properties or uh, absorb loans, basically quantitative easing, bailout for commercial real estate. Set, I want to get your view on whether you think that might be necessary based on your research uh, of macro and commercial real estate. But as a former uh, f- person at the Federal Reserve, is that something the, F- the Federal Reserve or Jay Powell would even entertain? He's already said no on the record. So he's he's been very public in saying there will not be a commercial real estate bailout. But again, the operating assumption is that there will be. Um, I think I think that Jay Powell philosophically aided by some of his closest lieutenants, Christopher Waller primarily, has decided that when the Fed crossed that red line to credit easing with mortgage-backed securities QE, that that created its own set of challenges, long-term challenges, right? Mobility is the lowest it's been in census data back to the post-war era. So you have a housing market that is frozen right now because people don't want to get rid of their very low mortgage rate. And that's a product of the Fed credit, the Fed's credit easing. So if you were to say, Danielle, not only is the Fed going to sanctify that, they're going to go one step further out on the spectrum and backstop commercial real estate. Well, if, if Jay Powell's already decided that backstopping housing was a bad idea, he, he, wouldn't, he, he wouldn't be game for bailing out commercial real estate. But he was game to go that extra step in March 2020. By... He was game to do anything. Yeah, but that was a very special circumstance. It was a special circumstance because high-yield issuance had shut down. Yes. And in in late 2018, the, the special circumstance left him completely scarred. So he was worried about systemic risk in the corporate debt market. Yeah, I'm talking about March 2020, all those special facilities. And that's the, what I'm saying. Yeah, that, yeah. That's when he bailed out the corporate corporate bond market. Mm-hmm. So that was a bridge way further out than. But even then, commercial real estate was not bailed out. So you say no? Yeah, I I probably agree with you. Yeah, I say no. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I will be crucified on my Twitter feed because most of the it's QE crowd is saying that that he will bend, he will break, that you know he's he's just. Powell pivot, pivot yeah. Powell. I think the the a lot of those people on your Twitter timeline are part of a group of people who, whenever the stock market goes up, whenever anything in financial assets goes up, number one, there must be liquidity, and number two, it, there must be QE. They go so it, you know, but we you know that's not true. The no. Federal Reserve's balance I mean, sheet is shrinking. Seen, you've seen you've seen retail trading volumes go through the roof. I mean, that's classic late cycle when you get retail investors that are fully in to buying the stock market blindly. It is classic, classic, classic late cycle. And what's your read of that, having seen many market cycles? So I think the early spring of 2021, March of 2021, to me, that was peak uh, bubble behavior where everyone was talking about the stock market. You got, oh, the S&P 500 index feds? No, you got to get into Tesla. You got to get into SPACs. SPACs. Yeah, everything. I feel like now 
the stock market is just grinding higher every single day, but I don't know if I'm seeing that re- retail participation, you know, that, that sort of fervent FOMO. Are you? It's not, you're not seeing it in meme stocks or in particular pockets. You're just seeing it in blindly buying the indices. And that's just, you can track retail flows and retail mm-hmm. flows into equity mutual funds, equity ETFs have gone parabolic. Yes. Although another thing is uh, in the same way, anytime the stock market goes up, it's QE. Anytime, uh, you know, speculative company triples overnight, it's called a meme stock. And I think, I see Tupperware, that stock went, I think it went up 300%. It, it did. And it's up big now because it just got debt. <laughs> but even yellow trucking, yeah, even yellow trucking was, was the source of speculation for a few days. It, it, the party ended yep. quickly when, when people realized that Apollo was going to give yellow money to fund it through the liquidation of the company because the assets are worth more when it's dead rather than try and go chapter 11 and restructure. But even Yellow was a meme stock for a hot minute. A company that's going to liquidate. Yeah, and like Hertz in uh, 2020, the stock went on a tear after it declared bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But which... Hertz, ca- remember, Hertz was chapter 11. Mm. So something was coming back. Some form of Hertz was at least potentially coming back. Chapter 7 does not allow for that. Chapter 7 is an entire full-blown liquidation. It's a completely different route in the bankruptcy system. Danielle, I, I always struggle to keep these interviews short. <laughs> so much to talk well, about. Well, and, and I'm, I'm laughing because, of, you know, every year the, the, the baseball cap changes colors at Camp Kotak. And I, I find it fitting that not only have we seen another downgrade, but that this year's hats are yellow. So it's, I'm, I'm into signs. And um, and I find it, I, I don't think I'll ever forget that this year's hats at Camp Kotak are the color yellow, which, by the way, is not the color of yellow trucking. It, the, the color of yellow trucking has always been orange, but it's mm-hmm. always been called yellow. I've learned way too much about this company. Craig Fuller at Freight Waves, big shout out. If you don't follow him on Twitter, he and I, we go back and forth one on one all the time. He's just brilliant. And um, and taking this capacity out of the system Kind of like you're hearing, you know, Walgreens is going to close 150 stores. CVS is going to lay off 5,000 employees. You know, it's reminiscent of back in the day when there were staples, office depots, and office maxes. You know, yellow coming out of the system is going to be good for the trucking industry, good for the freight industry to take that excess capacity out of the system. There's the irony there, is that this could be a good thing overall. Final question, Danielle. Oppenheimer or Barbie? Okay, I haven't seen Barbie, which, okay, I haven't seen Barbie. I saw Oppenheimer. It was biblical. So well done. I think it sweeps the Oscars. I, I think you're probably right. I, very long and a lot of characters, but I think it lives up to the hype. It, it was a very good movie. It was, it was very well done. Um, I, I will say on the opposite of the spectrum, I, I've also seen Mission Impossible. Um, oh, I and they could have cut 20 minutes out of that movie of just of Tom Cruise running. So, but also interesting that he, you know, did his own stunts. But um, no, Oppenheimer all the way. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us as always. And Jack, welcome to Lanes. Happy yeah, to have you here. My pleasure. 